So I was mentioning it, it might be somewhat of a train wreck when you normally follow sports with, say, history, but history is important. And if you doubted it, you just need to take a look at what's been going on over the last month or so. You know, some of it, if it weren't true, it's laughable. In other words, some of the, the statues that, uh, uh, that people elected to topple might have been the very people who were on their side. I, uh, in terms of some issues, maybe don't have sides, but you know what I mean. Uh, I liked James' suggestion, who called last week from Chicago, who had said, you know, leave the statues, but just erect plaques showing other sides of the issue so that people can make up their own minds. Well, of course, you can't make up your own mind if you don't have a foundation. And I think we often talk about how the education system has failed us with mathematics, and boy, howdy. But probably even more so, it has failed us with regard to history. And if you're saying, well, I won't need history. Well, our forefathers said we had a republic for as long as we could keep it. And if you don't know history, I have a feeling you're about to lose it. But I'll get off, uh, I'll get off my soapbox and introduce you to Jeffrey Sakenga, the executive director of the Ashbrook Center. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, I think something I've been hearing lately is probably bothering me more than anything else. And I've mentioned it before, and some people vehemently disagree. But I go crazy when people are saying they want to save our democracy. And I say to myself, wait a minute, it's a republic first. It's a democratic republic, and republic is what keeps you free, not democracy. How is this lost on the majority of people? Oh, that's a great point. And in fact, that's the, that's the word in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've forgotten it. It's, it's lost because we aren't teaching uh, American history and civics the way we should be in schools all across the country. I would agree with that. And of course, my jaundiced viewpoint will immediately say, well, if you look at the politics of the teachers unions, there is probably a certain amount of reticence to discuss this. And so the first question is, where's the curriculum coming from? And I I worry about LBJ and the Federal Department of Education. But when we're talking about a public school, school, a government hall of indoctrination, where are they deciding what they teach? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because good, good civics and good history used to be a bipartisan issue. We had a real consensus in this country up until the late 1960s about teaching history that was true, but also made really good citizens who, who understood their country and loved their country. And that was the foundation of, of the American Republic for decades and decades and decades. But unfortunately, um, radicals from the left got in charge of a lot of the nation's education schools, and they started teaching teachers the wrong things. And, and it's not the teachers to blame. It's these folks who have taken over the schools uh, that teach the teachers who have really started in the ni- late 1960s causing the problems that we're really starting to see now, even out on our streets. This is truly frightening to me because, of course, the uh, old tried and almost trite statement of those who don't know history are bound to repeat it has never been more true. And the idea that we could lose the concept of our founding fathers and why we are here is utterly frightening, and I'm afraid we've already lost it. Well, you know, the founders said, James Madison said it in the Federalist Papers, that this country was an experiment. Could the people govern themselves well? And 
like you had said, it's a republic. And the history of republics before the United States was pretty bad. They didn't last. Think about the Roman Republic. So many others that failed or collapsed. So they, they knew they were ta- conducting an experiment, but they had faith that the people could govern themselves if they had the knowledge and if they had the right qualities, the virtues, to be able to do that. And unfortunately, we are in danger of losing those. And I think it's twofold, because on the one hand, I think you're absolutely right about the curriculum and the content thereof. But on the other hand, when history isn't taught dynamically, it can be a real yawn. And so I think a lot of people will wind up, you know, being disinterested in the topic because of the way the topic is presented. Oh, that's so right. So when, when history isn't biased, it's boring. <laughs> those of us who were in school, we, we know those things from the textbooks, as you were saying. Um, yeah, history, look, history is a great conversation throughout the ages with some of the most interesting people you will ever meet. No one who ever met Abraham Lincoln thought he was dull. If we could just go back and get rid of those textbooks and read people like Lincoln himself, uh, we would find history would come alive. We can have conversations with the past like that and really learn from them. But, but we have to chuck those textbooks aside and go right back to the original sources and, and reopen a conversation with the past. That's a great way to do history. Anybody who's ever had a great history teacher, that's exactly how they taught it. There's right now, you've probably seen it, the Show Me History uh, hardcover comic book series that's, uh, that's truly terrific, and it's obviously meant for young readers, and I think it's a, a real good, good job. There's several titles out and more to come, and I, uh, I'm, I'm heartened that this is there. I don't know how it's being accepted, other than they keep bringing out more issues, but uh, are there any other efforts of individuals or entities who are trying to make history alive and exciting? Yeah, the good news is there are. You know, a lot of teachers in a lot of states around the country are starting to adopt standards that require teachers to teach the primary sources, so the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream Speech. Great, really important texts that are anything but boring. So there is uh, this movement, but um, it, not enough, and a lot of teachers haven't been trained to do it well. So organizations like mine, the Ashbrook Center, and many others around the country now are picking up the slack to try and help educate teachers to teach this way and really bring history alive. Are there any naysayers to this? Are there any individuals, maybe maybe school boards or other entities, that uh, would rather keep it just the way it is? There's always people in favor of the status quo. That's true. Um, whether it's organized groups or individuals. But, you know, when we go and talk to teachers around the country, and when we go partner with school districts, here's the good news. This is why I don't give up hope. A lot of people out there are hungry for this kind of unbiased, nonpartisan, real history and civics. And when you approach them like that, they respond really well. Even if they're a little bit uncertain at first, even if they're a little suspicious at first, they end up really responding well because they see how, how alive history becomes for them, and then they bring that into the classroom with their students. So, yeah, we have naysayers, but we're winning the skeptics over. With the recent events in the last month or so, has that in some way instilled more of a desire for people to be historically aware? 
No, just as you were saying when we let off, if if you didn't if you thought history was unimportant before, you can't think that now. History is always with us. And if we don't remember history, the famous saying is, right, we're doomed to repeat it. And nobody can deny how fundamentally important American history is. If you have the wrong understanding of American history, you tear down George Washington's statue. If you have the right understanding of American history, you really admire Washington. He had imperfections, as every human being does, but he was a great man, and the more you get to know him, the more you admire him. But you have to have the right understanding of history. But we're seeing it now out in our streets, the importance of it. What's worrisome to me is that I recognize it's an election year, as it is every two years for the House of Representatives, but politicians who are pandering to votes in such a way that they're going along with the idea, yeah, let's get rid of it all. And you might say that some of them are doing it because of their own agendas. Others are doing it for votes. But either way, it's very, uh, very upsetting to see the political bandwagon go in the direction that it has. Yeah. And, and as I said, good, good, good history, good civics used to be a bipartisan issue. We had broad agreement on that. Um, but you know what we need then? We need a grassroots movement of, of parents, of families who just demand better from their schools. And the good news is that schools are still pretty much a local affair in many ways in curriculum, even though we do have that dreaded Department of Education you were talking about. Mm. We still have a lot of control at the local level, and so I think it's up to parents and, and citizens of goodwill to make their desire known to their school districts that they want good history taught. And, and where, where that has happened, we've seen a movement to stand against the kind of trends we're seeing. With that in mind, when you talk parents and you're saying that these changes started in the latter 60s, which I would, I would concur with that timeline, what we're really saying is most of today's school children, even high school children, their parents are from a generation where they lacked an understanding as well. That's right, and that's a problem. You know, we're trying to reach generations, um, maybe, maybe two generations now. But, you know, we've found that there are really, though, a lot of parents who care, a lot of teachers out there who care. You know, my mom was a sixth-grade social studies teacher for 42 years in an inner-city school. She was a great teacher of American history. It's those kind of dedicated professionals out there, and they know when they're being fed a, a baloney, but sometimes they feel like they don't have any alternative. That's why it's really so important for, for the people who know history, the people who care about the education of kids in their community, to put pressure on school boards and for teachers themselves to know that they're not alone, that there are a lot of other teachers out there who agree with them and support this kind of teaching. You know, one side is pushing. It's time for the other side to push back. I, I would concur with that as well. When you look at the issues that are affecting us right now, uh, they're living proof that history is not something ancient and uh, and, unne- and you know unnecessary at this point in time. The biggest of which, to my mind, shows a blatant lack of historical perspective is the desire of some people to do away with the Electoral College. Uh, yeah. Yeah, rooted in, in real ignorance of, of the reasons why the system was set up, and um, just a, a contemporary view that forgets the importance of institutions that we have, like the Electoral College. And, and sometimes, frankly, an unwillingness to think through the consequences of getting rid of 
that kind of an institution. You know, it's not like the Constitution can ever be amended. It has been amended 27 times. But the founders set it up so that we would be thoughtful and deliberative. Like you said, a republic, not a democracy. So we don't follow every whim of public passion and, and, and go off a certain direction. You know, we tried that with the Constitution when we did the Prohibition Amendment and then realized, whoops, whoops, that was a mistake. So it, it's meant to be difficult to get rid of the things like the Electoral College to really make us think, yeah, you know what, maybe states are different. Maybe people in the states have their own interests and particular needs that really should be considered when we're electing a president. There's a lot of good arguments for the Electoral College. Uh, and if we go back and read those pr- fundamental documents from the founding, and we do history that way, we'll see those really good arguments. Oh, absolutely that's true. I think that the uh, United States, of course, is, was a plural noun. And when I say that, that's lost on most people. I know it's not on you. But we've been tearing at those principles since the 1800s, uh, whether it's the federal this or the federal that. Uh, we, we increasingly, a carrot and a stick, are taking away rights of states. And you have some people, including educators, I had one on a couple weeks ago, who say, well, we've gotten so far, now it's time to just do away with the Electoral College. And that logic is frightening to me, and it's being pervaded by a lot of people. Yeah, usually for a political agenda, right? Which is of they course. think if, if we get rid of the Electoral College, their political party is going to win the presidency. But, you know, you, you're in the majority one day, then you're in the minority the next day. And so sometimes people don't realize that the tide could flip that easily. And, and they forget the importance of something that you mentioned, which is the variety of states, federalism, right, that we call it, that not everything is and should be run by the government in D.C., that the states really are 50 different political societies. They're different countries for some purposes, and it should be like that. So some states can experiment with different laws, and, I, you know, it, that has served America really well. Sometimes we only think about the bad side of states' rights and in, in reaction to the civil rights movement of the rest. But we forget, if we don't study history, all the, thing, the good things that states have done. And again, the pandemic has brought home to us how important states are and the legislatures and governors of states, and they really do make a difference. And that, that's the way it should be. Absolutely. Jeffrey Sakenga is our guest. He's executive director of the Ashbrook Center, Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. And if you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. Uh, we were talking before, Jeffrey, about uh, some of the political implications that's driving people, politicians and, and others, uh, to just come up with theories that are so counter, counter to our republic that it's almost frightening. But occasionally, when some of these politicians get up on their, their high horse and make statements, it becomes almost laughable. I'm sure you've categorized this. What's the strangest thing you've heard come out of a politician's mouth? <laughs> What's the strangest thing I haven't heard come out of their mouth? <laughs> good, good point. But uh, of late, what are the things that yeah. almost make you blush? Um, <clears throat> when you hear politicians talking about historical figures like George Washington and saying that George Washington's name should be removed from schools, um, that, that is a shocking, shocking bit of ignorance. And that's political grandstanding of the worst kind. And those kind of things we've heard politicians say. 
um, mm-hmm. that that um, that that racism is in the DNA of this country, and that can never be changed. You know, that's not what Martin Luther King Jr. thought. That's not what the Civil Rights Movement thought. But we have heard politicians say those kind of things, and 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 that is what happens when you don't understand the history of America and you don't understand the story of America as the struggle for freedom from our founding until now. If you don't have that basic framework for your understanding of America, you're going to get some big things wrong and say some really bad things. What's most frightening to me about that is the people who are most emotional about that want a system that historically has been more to their detriment than anything they could even imagine America to be. And they somehow want to embrace things that will guarantee them dictators and despots. And they seem to believe almost like the trite, well, it wouldn't happen here. Well, and and you know what, when we look back at great um, figures from American history in the 19th century, and you had mentioned the 19th century before, uh, people like Booker T. Washington, people like Frederick Douglass, great black leaders, for example. What did they say the struggle was for? They said the struggle was for opportunity. As Frederick Douglass said, don't do anything with us, just leave us alone so we can work, be free, and, and keep the fruits of our labor and build ourselves up that way. And the struggle was to be free men and women like everybody else, not have, spe- not have advantages or specific uh, uh, benefits, but to be treated the same as every other American citizen and have the right to those same freedoms. That's what the original struggle was for, and they drew their inspiration from our American founding. And that's what's so disappointing to me to see today people who claiming the mantle of the civil rights movement who are ignoring and contradicting those founders of the civil rights movement. There's such a difference between so-called equality and equal opportunity. And I think that there's a lot of people who are are saying somehow that they want someone to make a wave a magic wand and make everybody equal, when in fact the best a government could possibly do under any circumstance or any system of government of which I'm aware would be to make sure and ensure that there was an equal opportunity. But they're very different concepts. They sure are. And the American principle that has brought us prosperity and freedom is to leave people to work to uh, the rights of the fruits of their labor to accumulate their wealth and capital to be able to pass it down to the next generations that kind of freedom that that's what has built this country economically and that was the original argument for people right after the civil war for a newly freed uh, slaves to give them those kind of rights the same rights everyone else has and to let them build wealth and build opportunity and make a better life for themselves and their family that way. The same rights that everyone else had. That's what the struggle was for. And that was a great struggle that unified a lot of people. Unfortunately, that's not the kind of rhetoric we're hearing from a lot of people today. Well, I, I look at it in many ways as a, a pie-in-the-sky argument. Even if I uh, come believing their premise is accurate about Washington or whoever and say, all right, we've got something here, now what are we going to do about it? Uh, any solution, solution that's postulated has historically proven not to be a solution. I mean, we're not going to legislate human nature, unfortunately. That's never going to change. But in terms of systems of government, I don't know where 
any country has, in fact, prospered by being uh, federally controlled and basically socialist. And right now, we have candidates. We had, of course, uh, Bernie, who was uh, a, a proud socialist. And to an extent, a lot of the rhetoric that uh, that Biden has adopted today, uh, these are, these are, you know, dyed-in-the-wool, tried-and-not-true principles, yet there still seems to be the siren call that this is a great idea. When you have an idea that doesn't work, why does it continue to be embraced by a large majority of people? Is it just the absolute lack of knowledge of history? Yeah, and they've forgotten history. The socialism is not progress. <laughs> it's regress. Um, you know, that great line from Margaret Thatcher, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. And we've seen that every time it's been tried in every kind of economy where it's been tried, in every country and culture where it's been tried. It doesn't work. Um, but we've forgotten that. And I think some people have frankly forgotten what socialism really means historically. It doesn't just mean subsidized college or something. It means command and control of the economy because those things end up requiring that. And when that happens, we've seen the disaster. And if we have real history that lets history speak for itself, it's absolutely undeniable. Capitalism creates prosperity, and socialism creates equality, equal misery. Where we are right now is an interesting time, because when you look at all the various systems of economics, uh, whether, whether we love them or loathe them, they're, they're basically built on the concept of full employment, one way or another. And where we are now is that with the technological advances and other things, we no longer need full employment. You know, when we had the Industrial Revolution and people left the farms to go to the cities, they had a job waiting for them. But now with the digital revolution, which is really just getting started, we're starting to see that that worker bee is not necessary for the economic system. So I always say it's a much greater mind than mine who is going to come up with the answer. What do we do when full employment isn't needed? Yeah, that, that's a great point. That's, a, you know, that's an issue that's been debated a lot in, in history. In the 1930s, people thought the problem was we've run out of, of new things to invent and create. In the 1930s, people thought that, that what else would there be for workers to do now that we have industry? But, the, you know, one of the great things about the human mind is how inventive and creative it is. Think of the things we have today that we couldn't have imagined 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. I think there's really no limit to human ingenuity and creativity. We don't know what the next industries are, of the future are going to be, but when they take off, they're going to employ a lot of people. You know, we don't have many blacksmiths anymore. <laughs> that, whole, that whole field has been wiped out, but it's been replaced by things even better. So I'm one of the folks who's optimistic about the ability of free enterprise and freedom to be able to continue to advance our prosperity. And, and the world is so much more prosperous because of, of the, the global spread of free enterprise than it was even 20 or 30 years ago. I would agree with that, and I also agree that in terms of inventions and changes, uh, the best is absolutely yet to come. But I look at this, and when it comes to the worker bee, uh, the individual who's not going to be an entrepreneur, doesn't want to be an entrepreneur, it isn't in him, it's just not, not in his DNA. Uh, when we look at increasingly, we don't need human capital that way in the workplace, 
What do you envision? And of course, I'm making you be Miss Cleo here and put on your you know crystal ball and magic <laughs> hat. But what do you envision could, in fact, be a driver of employment again for the base level? I'm a nine to fiver. I've been on the assembly line. This is all I do. I'm not going to be an entrepreneur worker. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think you're right. Even a, a, a better mind than me will have to figure a lot of that stuff out. Um, we're, we're still going to need, and, and, and this is decades into the future at least, but um, I don't think we're ever going to run out of the need for human beings to provide services, to make goods. Um, they're going to look different, and the kind of services that we're going to use are going to be very different just as they are now than 50 years ago. But I really believe in that capacity. I don't. I don't know if the. You're right. There won't be worker bees like there are now. But the future future jobs will look quite different. But um, if if history tells us anything, every you know it was capitalism was called a system of creative destruction. Um, there's the creative side, and then there's the destructive side. It destroys industries, but it replaces them with something else. It's always been that historically. And so I tend to think that it will continue that way in the future, but what it will look like will be, as you say, very different. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, those who are being displaced in terms of industries, they're, they're going to go kicking and screaming. So we're talking with Jeffrey Sakenga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, about history, which absolutely, when you talk about the economy, you can't talk about it without a historical perspective. It makes utterly no sense. So if you want to join us, I hope you will, 888-876-5593. I'm Raleigh James, and it's WGN Radio. We are talking about... American history. And even as I say that, I know that it sounds like a yawn to far too many people. But what's interesting is there is no facet of your life that isn't impacted in some way by the history of America and the history of civilization as well. And Jeffrey Sakenga, Executive Director at the Ashbrook Center from Ashland University, is joining me. You can too, you know, 888-876-5593. And particularly, because I, I can see that Jeffrey and I are of like minds, and, and we can go on probably all night, and this will be fun. However, however, if you totally disagree, well, you're who we want to hear from. And I think we just found him, Jeffrey. It's Bill from Brookfield, Illinois. Welcome. How do you do? All right. Go for it, Bill. Well, you've been discussing a lot about the Electoral College and how essential it is um, to, the, to the whole fabric of the political process. Um, and particularly, you said that the states need representation in the presidential elections as opposed to a, an actual democracy. So what, what, what interests are the states in for the presidential election, as opposed to the Congress, where the states are, shall we say, well represented by the Senate? By the way, before Jeffrey answers, and I'm going to give the floor to Jeffrey, I don't know if you're aware, but until the early 1900s, senators were appointed by states. They weren't elected by the people thereof. Well, well, that, well that's right, and that goes to prove the point that early in this country, the founding fathers were somewhat uh, afraid of democracy, afraid of pure democracy. Oh, I, I hope so. Way. Wait a minute. I hope so. If you're not afraid of pure democracy, you do understand that that's mob rule. Well, well I understand. Wait a minute. No. We have a republic. That's right. Electing the president by popular vote is not is not a mob rule. All the right. president is president of all the people. Why should somebody in Minnesota, in in Montana? 
be more influential in a presidential election than somebody in New York. Well, they shouldn't. Why should somebody in New York be more influential than Montana? I think that's the point of the Electoral College. But I'm speaking too much, and Jeffrey's the expert. Montana Montana has... Never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeffrey. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's a good question, a really good question. And your listeners um, should know if they don't that, in fact, at the Constitutional Convention, people like James Wilson argued in favor of having a direct popular vote for the president. So this argument is not a new one. It's been around a long time, ever since 1787, in fact. Um, that, didn't, that didn't win out for precisely the reason that you mentioned, Raleigh, which is that uh, a lot of the founders were concerned that, especially in electing a president who would be the one office elected by and representing and connected to the whole country, that all parts of the country in their various differences and variety of interests would be listened to and accounted for in the electoral process. You know, if we do away with the electoral why, why college... Aren't they, why aren't they accounted for by the, by the citizens of their own states? Well, they certainly, they certainly are in the, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. You're absolutely no, no, right no, about that. No, no, no. In the presidential election, people from all different states, and people in different states have different, different views. But they vote. They all have the. They all have the right to vote. That's right. But why shouldn't why shouldn't the president of all the country be elected by the majority of all the citizens? Because the, the state's interests the state's interests are well protected by the U.S. Senate, where the smallest state has two senators as as opposed to the biggest state, and that branch of government is very significant. That's where all the legislation comes from. The states are very influential in the Congress. But why should that carry over to the presidential election? If nothing else, the president is the figurehead of the country. And so there, there is a unique position involved with that. And you, you say, why can't all people vote? Well, the, all people can vote, but here's the deal. If the majority of the people live in a few states, then they are going to control what the entire country is and does, rather than going back to the fact that United States was a plural noun. And I know, I'm going to let you speak. And in terms of constitutionally... The federal government had extremely limited powers. Now, it's true that we have eviscerated that in many ways, but the concept still is that the states are the be-all and end-all, and United States is a union of individual states. Your turn. That, that, that doesn't address the issue. That, that doesn't address what... Look, at. you're saying... Um, the presidents will play, uh, people will play to the, major- to the states with the biggest majorities. That's not what happens. You know that's not what happens. Now, the, the, the candidates only go to the, to the swing states. If it was a popular election, every vote in every state would be just as important, and presidents would want to visit Montana and Rhode Island, too, to get as many uh, candidates would to get as many votes. But now with the Electoral College, it's skewed to just a few states, and those states are the only ones that get the attention. Actually, the states that get the attention are traditionally the most populous states. And that's no, that's why. not true. Where do they go to campaign, Raleigh? Where do they go to campaign? It, it depends when the primaries are, but where they go to campaign... They're, they're, no, no, they're no, not, we're not talking about the primary. After the primaries, where do they go to campaign? They, they're not leaving out Ohio or Florida or California, the population states. Oh, they do they? leave out California. Oh, I would disagree well, how, how many t- Well, How many times did... Uh, 
did Trump go to California except to raise money? Well, here, here's a situation. Trump, in his analysis, basically conceded that he wouldn't win California. Well, see, and why? Why? Because, see, that's the point. If it's a, if there wasn't the electoral college, there's a lot of votes in California. He could try and sway some of those. It wouldn't have worked. But he, that, that, that's a that's a that's an impossible task. If the vast majority, but he could narrow the margins in a in a, in a pure non-electoral college. I love, and those states would not be ignored. I love your passion, by the way. You're advocating that their interests, their interests are respected in this system, and it's just the opposite in the real, real world. Yeah, like I say, I love your passion, and I do disagree. But I'm, I'm thrilled you called, and I'm going to let. Jeffrey, well, you have to disagree with principle. Well, I do disagree with principle. We're, we're, we could argue that all night, which doesn't make for interesting talk radio. You're coming from a all premise right. that I disagree well, with, and I'm coming from a premise that you disagree with. So we're agreeing to disagree. Right. But here's the deal. I, I agree. So, Let, let's just go back to your conversation, in which you totally disparage the other side. Is totally irrational. I don't understand. You've got to give me the better reference than that. Earlier in the conversation, when you and your guests were discussing the Electoral College, you basically suggested that there were no decent arguments on the other side. Well, and I believe that. that, that people that, people that opposed the Electoral College knew nothing about history. And? That was very presumptuous. Okay. Well, and then you called to straighten us out. And so, Bill, I hope you're going to call I'm, I'm again. I'm sure I haven't straightened you out, but, no, I, but did, I did take umbrage at some of your, yeah, your and comments. That, and that's good. But you see, I did my job because I got you to call. I got you to be passionate about something. And I hope I can do that again sometime, Bill. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Bye-bye. Yeah. And so uh, so I respect his passion, but I'm giving you the, uh, the final word, Jeffrey, because we're down to that final 30 seconds. Sure. Look... This just shows you your, your caller is absolutely right. Um, the Electoral College is another example that this argument has been going on in America. It's not just happening this year. It happened way back at the Constitutional Convention. There have been good arguments uh, against it, and there will continue to be. There are also good arguments in favor of it, and I think we heard that here. Um, we, we can't forget history. We have to understand and one of the things that is so great about the conversation we had tonight was if we can share these fundamental principles of the American Republic, we have a basis on which to disagree, and we can disagree civilly. Absolutely. And when we see things like the American Civil War, we realize when those shared principles break down, um, the country breaks down. You're so, so right. we really need to rekindle in the hearts and minds of Americans everywhere the fundamental principles of the country, the kind of thing we see in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Well and then, said. Then we can argue about them, but we're arguing as citizens together who share these fundamental principles. And this is WGN Radio.